Hello and welcome to Reasonably Fit. We're Jason and Lauren Pack, and this is the podcast for anyone who wants a more thoughtful and grounded approach to health and fitness. As of right now, this podcast is still ad-free, but if you'd like to support us, the best way to do so is by leaving a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts or by checking out our Rise program, which is linked in the show notes. Today's episode is all about training considerations for individual circumstances and how you aren't broken or destined to never work out again just because of an injury or a diagnosis. We're going to start off this episode solo, and then we're going to bring on special guests Andrew Dettelbach and Katie Goss, who are going to talk to us about training with and around hypermobility, pain and discomfort, and pelvic floor dysfunction. We think you're going to get a lot of value out of this episode, so let's jump right in. All right, we are back for yet another episode. This one we're very excited about. We're switching up the format just a little bit. Yeah, I actually teased it at the end of last week's episode a little bit that we're going to be kind of combining the two formats that we've that we've tried so far, right? We've tried solo episodes. We've tried full interview episodes. We've gotten great feedback for both, but the main feedback we've gotten is that they people want a mix and they want, and we were originally thinking maybe we'll do every other week. Then we were like, oh, Genius idea. Thing, what if <laughs> what if we create the episode, create the topic, like have sort of an overarching episode where we started off with our solo style, and then we bring in experts on that topic who are going to just bring a lot of value and a lot of new perspectives to that specific topic. And we have the perfect one for you today. So we went with the topic, the overarching topic is you're not broken. If you need to make specific training considerations based on individual circumstances, that doesn't make you less fit. That doesn't make you a bad fitness person. It's just an individual circumstance that you can work around. We're going to talk a lot about some like personal experiences and how we've dealt with this training clients over the years. And then Katie and Andrew, our special guests, are going to come in and give some more specifics about training around hypermobility, training around back pain, training around pelvic floor dysfunction, um, all those things that I said in the intro just like five seconds ago. Um, And I think it's going to be just a really nice blend of the two types of formats that we've done. Yeah. So hopefully with all of our different perspectives, it can just help to normalize a lot of different conditions that you all might have Mm. and uh, put a bigger emphasis on just like internally and mentally that it's this big life sentence that you have to go through. But, you know, I think everyone has some sort of like orthopedic issue or some sort of issue going on that affects their training. And we want to normalize that and say like, hey, this is how you can navigate around certain things, not only physically, but mentally as well. So hopefully this podcast just gives you some hope and lets you know that you are actually, in fact, a resilient and strong person. Yes. And I think if you are listening and you're like, well, I don't have back pain, but I have knee pain, like you can almost just switch the joint we're talking about or the area of the body we're talking about and put yourself in that same position, right? Because you can really understand what it's like to have to make modifications and how that sometimes feels emotionally and mentally. So try to put yourself kind of like in these shoes if it doesn't directly apply because probably there's something in your life that is similar and having to make you have to navigate things a little bit differently, right? Yeah. Um, So I'll start with one that kind of came up, like a story that kind of came up for me when we were thinking about this topic, which is my mom. So I've been training my mom since we opened Achieve Fitness. So that was in 2012. She actually just sent me a picture. It was like nine years ago or eight years ago. I don't know how long. Um, and it was a picture of her standing in the squat rack and we had just 
gotten our first Achieve Fitness t-shirts and she's standing like as our only client, <laughs> like smiling and giving a thumbs up. And I was like, oh man, that's so funny. But that was the beginning of her training career. She was mm. never an athlete growing up. She didn't like exercise. I mean, we had like the eight minute abs and the eight minute arms videos growing up. So I think she might have done like one round of each of those. <laughs> and then I just did them because I was a gymnast and I thought they were fun. Yeah. Um, but I think they mainly collected dust. Like she just never really got into fitness until she was in her 50s when we opened the gym. And so there were a lot of things. She was experiencing a lot of those early gains in her 50s, like even though she was a little bit on the older side for starting out a fitness journey, she was experiencing all those same beginner gains. Like she was getting so strong and she was really excited and she was learning all these movements. And the way that we would progress things at Achieve was we would have a pretty standard progression for each of the main movement patterns. So for squats, we would do a, a, a body weight squat to a box. Then we would add a weight and do a goblet squat or a squat with a reach and then a goblet squat and then a kettlebell squat and then a kettlebell front squat a barbell archer squat, a barbell front squat. We would really progress. She got all the way through all those things, doing really great. But she always had a little bit of a hip shift. She had a little bit of difficulty with the squatting pattern overall. And one of the big things about my mom is that she had a really, really massive surgery after she had me. So this is many years ago where she had to be opened up all the way, her entire torso in the front and in the back. She had a tumor. It was a really massive surgery and she has a ton of scar tissue. And as we were working on her squat and like progressing her all the way through all these progressions, she was doing really well with them, but she always had just sort of like some difficulty with some ranges of motion. We were able to work around it, work around it, work around it. And when we finally got to barbells, we got to back squats. It just didn't feel or look great, right? Mm -hmm. And we were like, ah, so we were trying some different things. Like, all right, maybe change your stance. Maybe change the way you're holding the bar. And it never felt great for her. And she felt like this was a failure. Like this was something that she should be able to do. She would see other people doing back squats and back squats felt like the pinnacle, like the last progression, right? Mm. So it was like we had worked up to this and this was the the end goal. The final frontier. And then she couldn't really do it. Like it just, it wasn't that she couldn't. She could do it, but it didn't feel good in her body and it didn't necessarily look like the best movement pattern for her. And so we had to have a lot of conversations around like, is this worth it? Is it worth it for you to force this exercise that in the grand scheme of things is just a variation? Mm. It's just a way of squatting with some with a load. But it felt like this achievement that she hadn't unlocked. Yeah. Was it worth it to go for that? Or was it okay to say, hey, you can load up a bar pretty heavy with a Zercher squat. And for whatever reason, that variation looks a lot better for you, feels a lot better for you. Why don't we stick with that? Yeah. And so what we ultimately had to sort of come to is that it was not worth it. It wasn't worth it for her. And this could be a completely different story if it was a completely different person with a completely different set of circumstances, right? So that's, I think, why we wanted to call this episode training considerations for individual circumstances, because this isn't necessarily the training consideration that every single person who's had a massive abdominal surgery has to take, right? It's like she has that individual circumstance, and that led her to having to make this individual 
training consideration based on not only the circumstance, but also the the goals that she has, the reasons that she trains. Like there's so much more that goes into making these decisions around how do you decide to modify something or how do you decide to reroute your training um, in order to make it the best decision for you personally on all of those levels. Yeah. When we first started training, like the first four or five years or so, like we had in our heads certain progressions and certain things that people like should, quote unquote, should be able to get to like deadlift two times your body weight, bench your body weight and like just like just standards that were like, oh, yeah, like people should be able to do this. People should be able to do that. And it's like until we started training hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people it wasn't until then that we started to realize, like, why were we putting so much stock into these random lifts and putting these random standards and imposing them on people when it's like these lifts aren't that big of a deal. It's like more about finding lifts that work for people within their own body, within their limitations or with what they're good at and finding things that work for them and putting putting those lifts on a pedestal, not just like these arbitrary random lifts on a pedestal. And yeah. so I feel like we take fitness very seriously, but also not that seriously <laughs> on the same side of things. Like these are all, all these lifts are just like, they're just lifts. They're all just variations of one another. And so it's like, it's important to take a step back and realize that one exercise isn't necessarily better than another. And that's like, that kind of guides our content, the way we program. Even when we put things online for like social media, we'll have modifications and alternatives that we show and just say like, one's not better than the other. It's just like, pick one that works best for you in this moment. Yeah, exactly. And it really is, it helps you to take a step back and think about what, why are you, why do you want to do that exercise? Mm. Is it because you think that's a good exercise that you should do? Or is it because you want to get stronger in a squatting pattern? And if it's like for in my mom's instance, right? Yeah. And so if it if the goal was really, I want to get stronger, I want to be able to make sure I can always get up off the couch without pain. And I want to be able to move freely and drop down and play with my grandkids and all these different things then back squatting kind of has nothing to do with that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like we just need to be able to move in ways that don't cause any pain or discomfort in the gym and also enhance those areas of your life. And so we had to find the middle ground, the area, the, the place in your workout regimen that actually is that sweet spot. Yeah. And so for your mom, back squats just didn't like really feel great, right? But there's another side of this where a different circumstance where someone might actually have pain with a th certain movement, like mm -hmm. squats might bother their knees or uh, deadlifts might bother their back or overhead presses and kettlebell snatches might bother their shoulders. Like, you know, any one of these like different combinations. And when you're in that position, it feels so frustrating and so upsetting. And that's all you can think about. Like you can, like if, if squats bother your knees, all you can think about are your knees. And all you can think about is trying to get back to the level of squat that you were trying to get at before. Instead of thinking about ways where you can just scale things back or choose a different variation, choose a different alternative that works with what your body is presenting with in this moment. And hopefully with this episode, you can kind of just take a lot of the emotion out of it and just take these lifts off their pedestal and just take them for what they are. They're just ways that 
You can work your legs. There are ways that you can work your shoulders and you don't have to do a specific variation just because the internet or social media or trainers tell you that they're the best version of X, Y, and Z. Yeah, exactly. You can think about a deadlift as you can break it into what is the movement pattern that's happening here or what is the main muscle group that's being worked here. You can kind of do it in either way, right? Mm -hmm. So let's take the deadlift for instance. Your back is bothering you doing deadlifts. You're like, oh, this is so annoying. I I can't do deadlifts. And then you feel like you just have to completely take them out. And so then you just go about your program, but you take deadlifts out completely and you don't replace them with something else. We don't think that's the way to go. Mm -hmm. We think that there's a way to make a switch, make an adjustment, make a modification that still keeps like the main principles of why you were doing that exercise, why that exercise was in your program, but does it in a way that meets you where you're at, right? So for the deadlift, for example, maybe a conventional deadlift is bothering your back. Maybe you try a sumo deadlift. Mm. Maybe you try a trap bar deadlift. If you haven't even tried different variations, start there. Keep the exercise, but just do it in it with a different stance. This was um, from Jesse Mundell's episode that was one of my favorite things that one of her mentors said. I forget his name. I said I would quote her quoting him, but I forget. <laughs> you have to refer back to that episode for that. Um, but that if something doesn't feel good in your body, just change it a little bit, mm-hmm. which is such a simple piece of <laughs> advice, right? It's like, it's so um, it's so wise. But <laughs> Just change it a little bit first. You don't have to throw it away. Change it a little bit. And if that still doesn't work, then break out, okay, what what pattern am I working? I'm working a hinge. Maybe I can do a kettlebell deadlift. Maybe I can do an RDL. You start playing around with other things. Okay, a hinging pattern is just out. Then we go to what muscle groups is it working? My hamstrings, my posterior chain. Maybe I can do a glute bridge. And just start to figure out a way that you can incorporate the basics of what that exercise was supposed to be accomplishing in a way that meets you where you're at. Mm -hmm. And now this is a conversation that we would have all the time with our members in all sorts of different body parts and joints, right? So let's take that deadlift, for example. We would say, okay, conventional deadlifts right now, for whatever reason, it's bothering your back. Let's swap it out for sumo deadlifts. We do this sort of modified sumo stance. It feels so much better. And three, four weeks pass, they're getting stronger, they're enjoying the movement, but in the back of their minds and vocally to us, (laughs) they're saying, okay, can we go back to conventional deadlifts? I wanna try conventional deadlifts. Let's see how how strong I am with my conventional deadlifts. And it's like, no, conventional deadlifts aren't working right now for you for whatever reason. The sumo deadlift is working for you. So let's stick with that. It's like you're going back to an old ex-boyfriend, old (laughs) ex-girlfriend for whatever reason. Stick with the new person that is showing you love. All right. I love it. It's such a good, it's so true. And like, there is a time and a place for like, if there's a very specific reason for returning to that exercise, maybe you would like, right. If you're a competitive powerlifter mm. in real life and I, I mean, sumo deadlift and conventional deadlift are both as, as much as the inter- internet will debate this, they're both <laughs> deadlifts. Competition, <laughs> acceptable deadlifts. Yeah, yeah. The internet will have you believe that sumo deadlifts aren't real deadlifts, <laughs> which is the most bizarre argument I've ever seen because powerlifters do them. Um, but say that you've had to swap out deadlifts all together and yeah, you've been doing trap bar or you've been doing uh, hip thrusts or whatever. You, there, there would be a reason if you're trying to compete in powerlifting to try to get back to that deadlift, but mm-hmm. you would want to do it very gradually, very slowly, not just, okay, I'm feeling good. Now let's go right back into my training program that I was at five weeks ago with the same weights and start the whole process again. Yeah, because you go back to that same variation and then you play the comparison game. It's like inevitable. It's like, oh, okay, like uh, I took five weeks off of this. Like uh, it'll only take a week to get me back to speed. And it's just like, it's just this accelerated process is what people get 
into this trap of where they accelerate the process, then they get hurt, then they do their quote unquote modified lesser version of the lift. And then they try to go right back to their normal lift, quote unquote. And so it's like a negative cycle that happens because you're placing so much stock and emphasis on this one lift in the first place. Yeah. And I mean, so I've experienced this myself when I was postpartum with Kinsley. I talk about actually a little bit of my own um, pelvic floor dysfunction in this episode in the interview later with Katie. Mm -hmm. Um, But after Kendrick, Kendrick's birth was my most traumatic birth. But I didn't have quite as much of a challenge with my recovery as I did with Kinsley's for whatever reason, whether it was second second birth and then so, you know, double the trauma in that area, whatever it was, I had a much harder time recovering from Kinsley's birth. And one of the main things that I really was feeling a lot of pelvic floor symptoms with were deadlifts. And deadlifts had always been my favorite lift. I even competed in a powerlifting meet eight months postpartum from Kendrick. So even though I had some of these pelvic floor symptoms, I was able to manage them a little bit better then. And I I think I deadlifted like 275 or 265 or 275 at that meet, eight yeah. months postpartum. I was like, okay, great. I can still deadlift. Like I'm feeling good. Nothing was hurting. Awesome. With Kinsley, I remember my first set of barbell deadlifts was at like you know 115 or something 95 pounds i think yeah and i was like nope i can't do that right now and i was kind of like okay note taken like i gotta still do some rehab i'm gonna go to my pelvic floor pt and like i'll get back to deadlifts eventually i went to pelvic floor pt we're working on things things are feeling better in general but every time i went to deadlift that's when i would have the most severe symptoms Mm. and i finally got to a point where i like remember having this conversation with you where i was like why do I, why am I trying to force this? Mm. Like deadlifts have been a favorite lift of mine, probably mostly because I was good at them in comparison to squats, for example. And I was only trying to force it because it had always been something I had done in the past. But I realized that I could easily get the benefits of a deadlift by combining different variations of things like hip thrusts that weren't causing me any pain or discomfort and RDLs, which were fine and going a little bit lighter. I was like, what, why am I doing, why am I trying to force my body to do this? And so I, I didn't deadlift for a good seven or eight months postpartum after sort of that little trial and error period. And we were talking about, I feel like me playing football comes up on this podcast like (laughs) all the time, but we were talking about how this season playing football, I've been feeling really strong. Like I've been feeling like I can shed blocks and I can like move people. I can can block. I can do a lot of things that require a lot of strength. And I was like, and I'm not even deadlifting. (laughs) And for some reason, I still have that thought in my mind that if I'm not deadlifting, I'm not strong. Mm. And I was like, this is such a great realization to me that this one exercise doesn't dictate my strength. Like there's no correlation. It's just an option. It's not something I have to do. And so that's just, and Again, I'm hinging. I'm using that pattern. I'm doing RDLs. I'm doing other variations that don't cause me any pain or discomfort. So I'm getting the benefits without forcing the variation. Yeah. This uh, this reminds me of um, when Mike Boyle, who's a strength and conditioning coach, and he's, he's like a legend in this industry. And he had a post out how he actually has stopped completely back squatting or front squatting in it with a barbell um, with his athletes. And he trains... High school, collegiate, professional athletes, Olympians. And he said, you know what? The risk doesn't outweigh the reward in our particular setting. And we're going to switch to Bulgarian split squats. Basically a 
single leg version of a squat. And he found that that had better carryover to his athletics and whatnot. And it's the internet just <laughs> Broke. blew up and the strength and conditioning community basically were, I mean, they were trying to like disown him and cancel him <laughs> from strength and conditioning. Before canceling was yeah. even a thing, we tried to cancel Mike Boyle. <laughs> and they're like, how, like, how can you not back squat? Back squatting is a fundamental human movement pattern, like all stuff that we agree with. But it was just funny, this so much emphasis on this one lift and this person over here who's had great success is saying that, yes, and it works the legs and you can work the legs in a different way. And this so much pressure put upon these lifts can really uh, negatively impact your health and fitness, which is what you're trying to improve in the first place. Right, <laughs> exactly. So we're going to talk about some more specific issues in our interview with Katie and Andrew. But basically, the whole gist of the interview and hopefully what you're getting out of this whole segment with Lauren and I is that if you have a special consideration or circumstance that is affecting your training, it is really important to just take a step back and realize that first of all, there's nothing wrong with you. It's it's way more common than you think that someone has some sort of underlying issue that is affecting their training and that you are not broken, that you are actually resilient, that your body can really adapt well. It's just all about meeting yourself where you're at, not putting random exercises on a pedestal, not playing the comparison game with your previous self, and just listening to your body and taking small, calculated steps forward. And basically, over the long haul, if you're consistent, a lot of good things happen. And I think, Lauren, you're finding out right now that deadlifts with 135 pounds is okay now. Mm -hmm. And that's only because you were able to really strip it back, do hip thrusts, do single leg deadlifts, do variations of deadlifts. And then now here we are a year later, and now you're slowly able to reintegrate deadlifts. But you're not trying to get back to 275 as quickly as possible. <laughs> you're starting with 135, doing some reps here, and just really working slowly and listening to your body and making sure you're not trying to set it back in any way. Exactly. So now we're really excited to share our interview with Katie Goss and Andrew Dettelbach. Andrew and Katie are the co-founders of Wealth, spelled W-H-E-A-L-T-H. They've both been diagnosed with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and have used their personal experiences and professional expertise to help thousands of people overcome pain, build strength, and live confidently. We're so grateful for their time, and we hope you enjoy this interview with Andrew and Katie. All right. Thank you so much, Andrew and Katie, for being here with us. We are very excited to have you here as our experts today. And we want to start by just giving you a chance to introduce yourselves, give a little bit of background on yourselves as professionals. And then we're going to get a little bit more into some things that you've gone through personally that have sort of shaped the way that you coach and the way that you train yourselves. So would you mind giving a quick little intro to our listeners? Sounds great. My name is Katie Goss, and I co-founded the company Wealth that we run. My background and my degree is in nursing, and I have been really passionate about health, fitness, wellness, anatomy, physiology, just kind of all things human body um, for as long as I can remember, which is why I went into nursing originally. And after being in the healthcare system for a while and experiencing um, you know, on the inside, really how broken the system is and how many limitations there are in terms of actually helping people live a healthier lifestyle. 
um, I got very frustrated and then experienced that myself as a patient. And that's really what led to me kind of getting into what I do now. And thank you for having us, first of all. I'm Andrew Dedelbach. I have a degree in kinesiology, and I've had the privilege of working in clinics for many years, running clinics. Uh, I've built online programs long before COVID (laughs) happened, and uh, I've helped tens of thousands of people online in my programs over the years. I've had a significant number of injuries throughout my life, and it's been an incredible opportunity to experience those injuries because it's actually allowed me to help all of the people that I've had so far. Uh, We built wealth together with a very open mind. Instead of focusing so much on movement, that's what we previously did, is like movement is the key to pain relief. We started to address pain from a multifactorial approach, meaning we focus on mindset, lifestyle, diet, um, your social network, the people that are around you who lift you up or pull you down, as well as the movement, uh, and including education about pain, how it works. And so we're very passionate about how the whole picture matters in regards to pain and not just each individual piece, which is what we see happening across the fitness in- industry. It seems like there's people that just specialize in certain areas uh, the knee, for instance, or carnivore diet or veganism or, you know, uh, physical therapy and chiropractic. And it's like, let's just blend the whole picture together. So um, I don't know if that gets us into your part of your question about like our journey over the years, because we just listened to your podcast about um, how you had shifted your mindset over the years <laughs> as like you went from bodybuilding body to kettlebell to Olympic lifting yeah, and so yeah. on and so forth. Yeah, that's perfect. That's perfect. I mean, it's really nice to yeah talk to people who are cool with being like, hey, I've changed my mind on things. I have evolved. Like that is how we should be, especially as people who are working with others and trying to help people. The more you learn, the more you're going to change your point of view. And so that's awesome. I, I love that that's a part of your story and that you're that you're you are where you are right now. It's perfect. Um, okay, so let's talk about Andrew. You just mentioned that you've had. Um, some injuries. And Katie, I know that you actually both share this in common, that you both have, correct me if I'm saying it wrong, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Say it correctly. Okay, great. Um, Can you talk about, and and so that's hypermobility, but it's a very specific um, type of hypermobility. Can you talk a little bit about what that is, how many people are affected by that? Yeah. So it's estimated that about 20% of the population is hypermobile. When it comes to hypermobility, it is a spectrum. So you can have generalized joint hypermobility, meaning that, you know, your various joints are hypermobile. Sometimes it's called double jointedness, just like lay terms. Um, But you may not have other systemic impacts from it. You can also have hypermobility in a single joint. So say maybe, I don't know, you're a basketball player, you've rolled your ankle more times than you can count. And so as a result, the ligaments may be stretched out. So you may have a ankle that's very hypermobile, Mm. but nothing else. So it can be um, just one joint, it can be just a handful of joints, or it can be kind of systemic and widespread. On the other kind of um, worse end of the spectrum is uh, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And there are actually uh, 13 types of EDS, but the hypermobile EDS is the most common type of it. And it is the only type that does not have um, a genetic test for it yet. 
Oh, wow. But they, they have identified a candidate gene. Um, we both actually are participating in research through the um, Norris Lab at the Medical University of South Carolina, hoping that they are going to find that gene so that there will be a blood test for it. Wow, um, because you both found out pretty later, pretty later, pretty late in life, right? That you that you had yes. this syndrome. Yeah. So it was after I had my second son, and I had a lot of pelvic floor issues, um, and had pelvic organ prolapse, pelvic organs falling out of place, basically my small intestine prolapsed. Um, so very extensive prolapse mm. for someone who didn't have any traumatic birth you know, I'm not obese. I didn't have any underlying risk factors that I knew of. Dove into reading, um, kept hearing this crossover with hypermobility, learned more about some of the tests um, that you can do to see if you might be hypermobile, scored high on those tests, um, was referred to a geneticist and diagnosed. Mm. And then I'm the type of person that I love to learn absolutely everything that I can about something. And so just kept reading more and more research and books and medical texts. And then I met Andrew and I saw his weird party tricks, you know, that he does like his elbow stuff and his belly rolls. People won't be able to see that. A lot of his clear We'll we'll show a quick quick, uh, clip on stories. (laughs) Perfect. And when I met him, I was like, if I have this thing, I'm pretty sure that you have this thing and you should talk to your doctor about it. And so he also went to a geneticist and was diagnosed. And it was very eye-opening for me because I've had chronic pain since I was, or persistent pain is what we like to call it nowadays, Mm -hmm. since I was like eight or so years old. And I had my most significant injury to date when I was about 23. I herniated my disc and my L4, L5 was 10 millimeter herniation. I had sciatica down both legs. I actually had a bulge of eight millimeters to the right. So herniated <laughs> left, bulge to the right, the same level. And um, so I had dual sciatica and that lasted for two years. I had multiple surgeons tell me I needed to have surgery and I ignored it because people in my family and patients at the time have had surgery and it's kind of a gamble. You're not really sure if it's going to solve the issue. One person in my family's had six lower back surgeries and he's in the worst pain of anyone that I know. Mm. Uh, he has a pump inside of his body with a needle going into the area of pain where he can inject his cortisone himself wow. into the area, oh, but wow. they missed. So it does nothing. Oh, You'd have geez. to have a oh seventh God. surgery to move the needle. And it's just not worth it. At this point, he has so much scar tissue that wow. the scar tissue itself is probably what's causing most of the pain. So I knew I did not want to take the surgical route and I ignored that advice and I took the very, very, very slow, long road of improving myself. I lost 40 pounds of muscle at that time. I was doing bodybuilding at the time. And <laughs> <Weren't> um, we all. <laughs> I lost 40 pounds of muscle and I didn't step foot in a gym for about a year and a half. And I just did the most basic bare bone movement, you know, focused on walking to the mailbox and back and then walking a little bit farther and then Mm. just slowly kind of focusing on those little wins. And I latched onto those little wins and that helped propel me through the process of two years of, you know, being in pain. And it was from that process that I learned, you know, the, how the body worked together from head to toe, rather than just focusing on the lower back, which is what the physical therapist wanted me to do how important it was to focus on the breath and the scapular positioning, your thoracic positioning, um, you know, the positioning of your feet and the knees and the hips and how it all lined up. And 
at the time I was working in the clinic with my disc injury. So I was essentially experimenting on myself and I was experimenting on all of our patients and just seeing massive improvement across the board. That's so cool. And so did you, you were already like, you were, had already graduated from kinesiology school. Like you were already in your was, career at that yeah, point. I bulged my disc during studying for finals. Oh God. <laughs> like <laughs> it was, it was my, my movement patterns that weakened the disc. And then I was laying in bed, coughing, studying for finals. Oh, oh no. I was like, you know, sat up against the wall, like on my computer and just like coughed really hard and felt the pop. Oof. Several months later, I actually herniated it at that point. Um, but it was, you know, going through the hypermobility exam and this guy talking about all the things that could go wrong and Katie talking about it in detail about how hypermobility worked. It was like all these light bulbs, you know, the skin mm. irritations, my vision getting worse, my, I've had like 20, 30 cavities, like all of these things are related to hypermobility. Um, I do clean my teeth, by the way, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> they look very white. <laughs> yeah, so there's there's multiple components. You know, my blood pressure, getting dizzy when I stand up. Um, obviously, my hypermobility in certain joints and, and my tendency to have an injury somewhere in my body at any given time, uh, or at least pain, not necessarily an injury. So all of that really resonated with me. And during that appointment, the geneticist was like, you need to stop lifting. You need to focus on, you know, doing yoga and stretching mm. and not doing things. And at, at that time I'd already healed my back. It had been about five years since my back injury. Mm. And I was like, screw you. Like that, that is, <laughs> you know, we've worked with so many doctors that tell people what they can't do anymore in their life. And so I went and PR my lifetime deadlift right after that meeting, literally <laughs> an hour later. Um, and and we've kind of stuck to that mentality of like, you know, there's a lot of things that you may need to reel back from, but really focusing on the the little steps that you need to take to get you back to doing the things you want to do in your life. That's so interesting that they said, okay, you're hypermobile, you should stretch. I'm confused by <laughs> yeah. that recommendation. Can you talk to me? Because actually one of my questions on here was, should people with hypermobility do any mobility work? Should they do any stretching or should they avoid it and do strength training? Like in my mind the most counterintuitive advice would be stretch more. <laughs> so I'm curious to hear maybe what, yeah. why that is a recommendation, but also how you have gone about approaching this with people that you work with and with yourselves as well. So it's really interesting when it comes to hypermobility. Um, number one, it's not taught much at all in the medical community. Like in med school, doctors just don't learn much about mm. hypermobility or about connective tissue disorders. What they do learn is extremely limited and is usually showing examples of, you know, absolute worst case scenario. These are like the circus performers that you see like stretch their skin out really far, which is more um, in line with like a classical type of hypermobility. Um, so I think it's important to recognize that it's, it's really not their fault. They just aren't provided that knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, and in the hypermobility community, there is a lot of fear, like it, just fear inducing speak language. Um, there is a general lack of research pertaining to hypermobility. So there just aren't any really good studies showing what is best. It does, you know, come down to a bit of common sense. If your joint is hypermobile and has a large range of motion, and your joint is having a hard time sort of holding your body together, what's the other thing that helps hold your body together? 
that you can control is your muscles, right? right? So you can strengthen your muscles and it's going to help provide stability. Uh, some of the other things that people struggle with alongside hypermobility are things like proprioception, balance. Those are also going to be improved with training. Mm. But the tricky part is that people who are hypermobile often do tend to get injured more. These are your people who will, you know, go to like a group exercise class and they're just, they're constantly injured or your client who just first it's their shoulder, then it's their knee, then it's their back. And it's just, something is always hurting, getting tweaked in, you know, seemingly simple exercises that shouldn't be producing pain. And the injuries take longer to heal for someone who's hypermobile. So Definitely there needs to be strengthening, but it does need to be intentional and it does need to start with very basic movement patterns and very gradually building up and increasing weight. So it might be starting with just body weight, maybe just some resistance bands, very light weights. Um, Things like Pilates can be really great, assuming that they have a very good instructor. Some people who are hypermobile may have some areas that are truly tight. And, you know, some stretching may be warranted, but you have to be a little bit careful with stretching in someone who's hypermobile because a lot of times it's the actual joint capsule that's going to provide that range of motion and not the muscle fibers. And although they won't feel a stretch, they'll be able to do that and they feel nothing, but their nervous system still senses that the joint is being overstretched. And so as a result, the muscles tend to tighten up and kind of clamp down a bit, resulting in even more feeling of tightness and pain. And so it can get into this really nasty cycle of, you know, they feel like they need to stretch, but really they don't. That makes um, so much that's sense. the cycle. I was in that cycle when I met Andrew, I said, my hamstrings are just always tight. <laughs> they feel so tight. I just have to stretch them just constantly. And he said, let me see. And I bent over and put almost my forearms flat on the floor. And he was like, you know, stop doing that, please. All right. That actually, that was such a helpful just kind of like recap of, of why that might be like the news that you get if you are diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos or if you have hypermobility, it might be don't lift. And at first, like you said, like that's counterintuitive, but that's only counterintuitive to us because we understand progressing from a baseline of movement first and then very gradually increasing load. But for a doctor who's seeing people maybe coming in with injuries from very intense workouts and from, you know, people who don't necessarily haven't been coached or haven't worked their way up to something more gradually, they might think like, well, definitely you shouldn't hold a weight over your head because you don't, you don't have control of that joint. So now I'm actually starting to understand why that might be the first recommendation is like, don't lift weights. (laughs) Cause I was like, what? Yeah. It's really like people think of strength. They're like squats, deadlifts, bench press, pull-ups. Like you shouldn't do those things. And well, there's a lot more to it than that. Mm. Totally. So is the the difference between hypermobility and having Erlos Thanos? Thanos is definitely not how you say it. Thanos. (laughs) (laughs) Just just a snap of a finger. It is not an Avenger. (laughs) (laughs) Is it the all the other stuff that you were mentioning, like the blurred vision and like some of the other neurological stuff going on, a blood pressure? Like, is that the difference? Like, one is just purely isolated at joints and one has more systemic factors going on? So like I said about the spectrum, so there's the, you know, single joint or kind of generalized joint. Then there's something called hypermobility um, syndrome, which is the joints plus some of the more systemic issues. 
and then EDS is, you know, the far end of the spectrum. It is a clinical diagnosis. So because there's no blood test, like I mentioned, it requires the person diagnosing to be very, very knowledgeable about hypermobility to correctly diagnose. And there's a full page of criteria. There is something called a Baton score where they will, you know, can your thumb touch your forearm and does your pinky go back more than 90 degrees? And they'll put you through um, and you'll get some points on that. And then, you know, they'll look at other things. Have you had hernias, prolapses, um, you know, dysautonomia, some of the other things that can go along with it. So it's kind of a confusing thing to diagnose. There's really not a super clear yes or no. It's Mm -hmm. kind of looking at the whole big clinical picture and deciding, does this person have a connective tissue disorder, meaning that it's impacting all of their connective tissues, which make up every system in your body, or is it really more just their joints? I wanted to ask you about that because, or I didn't ask, Jason asked, but I also had that on my list because we each have some like, you know, things here and there that people point out to us like Jason can do the I can't do it but he can do the thumb <laughs> uh, my elbows are oh, yeah. super hyper extendy and so people are always commenting on Instagram like you shouldn't be locking out your elbows and like so there's we each I feel like have these like small maybe single joint or like you know instances here and there throughout our body but nothing systemic um, but for folks who like so a lot of people might have even just one or two like what would you say to me for example at the top of a push-up would you say lock out or would you say stop early like what are your recommendations in that case this is something so we love healthy debates between the two of us mm-hmm. and this is something that we have kind of debated and talked through a lot with my background um, as a pilates instructor you know we're always kind of wanting to not do the hyperextension. it's think about that little micro bend you really use the muscles to support your positioning versus just kind of collapsing into the joints and i find that for a lot of people who do hyperextend thinking about that little micro bend, even just an imperceptible, I don't even care if you're still hyperextending, but if you're just thinking about a little bend, it takes a lot more muscle to, to hold that position. Like it may, suddenly makes it a lot more difficult, which to me is a good thing versus kind of collapsing into your positions. Um, I, Andrew's really persuaded me to not think that hyperextending necessarily is a bad thing, but it's really about whether you're getting into that hyperextension actively or passively. So can you get into the hyperextension actively without adding resistance or without using something to get you there? And then do you have strength and control in that hyperextended position? And if not, that's a great thing to work toward and getting strength there because it's going to decrease the risk of getting injured in that position. Perfect. I love that. I love that answer. (laughs) summed it up. Yeah, that's so great. I think we've heard, I mean, I've heard, I ask everyone because I'm just curious what they would say because I've heard so many different opinions and, you know, I don't think there's a definitive answer to this question, right? And so you are going to have a lot of different opinions and modalities that do things a little bit differently. Um, But I I really love that. And I I can totally understand what you're saying is like, if I'm just resting, basically like resting on my joint and like just letting my joint do all the work that probably like isn't necessarily helpful or like I'm not getting much benefit out of that. Whereas if I'm being a little bit more active, but if I'm at the top of a pushup, I have no pain. I feel strong. I'm utilizing the rest of my body as well. Where, why is that a problem? And so, yeah, it's really great to consider both sides. I appreciate the uh, not just a black or white answer. And Lauren and I do that all the time where we kind of like, 
we literally like lean back just like you did, look at each other and be like, okay, how do we approach this <laughs> can of worms that's about to be open? And you summed that up very, very nicely. So I'm very impressed by that. <laughs> yeah, you. I think it takes uh, a bit of exploration on each individual's part. Are you, you know, just seeing how you feel in that, in that extended range? Like the other day, I was making content with a guy named Gabo Saturno. He's a, a calisthenics dude. And he was taking me through a pretty wild stretch uh, for the shoulder. And it kind of passively sent my elbow into a bit of hyperextension, which it's been hurting for a few days since. But if I'm holding 275 pounds overhead and I'm actively pressing into that, and maybe I have a little bit of hyperextension, it's a very different feeling mm. because I'm everything is engaged in that mm. position where the other one, it was completely relaxed. And I think that's the difference. Each person just kind of needs to explore what each exercise feels like for them and being a level of engagement. And sometimes people do need that kind of like unlocking cue or what I just have people do is engage both the triceps and the biceps equally. And that pretty much helps to line it up for them. That's great. It takes a little more brain power. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Can you give some more? Um, I want to move on to like pain and injuries, training around pain and injuries um, in a second, but just finishing kind of wrapping up the hypermobility section. Can you give a little bit more um, sort of like training considerations for people who might be hypermobile when they when they do want to strength train? What are some things that you really want to make sure that they're thinking about focusing on? I know we're going to talk about pain, but this is a huge thing. People are terrified of doing movements because they can cause pain and you can't. The more you stop moving, the weaker you're going to get and the more injuries you're going to experience. So there is a level of discomfort that's going to be expected for everyone, whether you have hypermobility or not, when it comes to training and moving and exercising. And it's very important that you kind of lean into that and accept that there's going to be some discomfort, maybe a little bit of pain, but the alternative is that you get weaker and weaker and weaker and things get worse. So you have to kind of weigh it. You know, I, I experience pain still. I'm not, you know, we have programs to help people with pain and yet I still experience some pain, but I feel a lot better with a little bit of pain versus being sedentary and having a lot of pain like mm -hmm. I did a long time ago. When it comes to hypermobility, chronic pain is a comorbidity. It's just a very common thing with people with hypermobility and specifically with EDS. And when people are diagnosed with hypermobility or EDS, a lot of times they'll start Googling and reading. And it's it's kind of scary to read about. Like the the literature, the text that you will read, you know, references chronic pain, chronic fatigue, you know, disability. It really paints a really grim picture for your future. Um, I went through that and got very depressed, very anxious, very nervous about what my future was going to look like. How am I going to pick up my kids and like go hiking and camping and play sports? And um, it really was frustrating. And that was one of the things that really made us want to create a program for people who are hypermobile because we really wanted to show people that although you can't change your genetics, if you have a genetic connective tissue disorder, nothing that you do is going to change your genes. But you can change how those genes are expressed and all of the lifestyle factors, everything from your diet to how you sleep to how you move your body can really change the outcome and how you feel and how you function. And so a lot of it initially is just helping people overcome fear. There's a lot of just people feel so fragile. Um, there's actually T-shirts with like the Ehlers-Danlos Society is like you know, fragile handle with care. That's oh. like what their shirts say. And I'm like, no, no, how about super resilient or yeah. like something positive, you know? 
Um, so a lot of it is just getting past that fear and then just starting, just starting, you know, I say basic, but basic movements you guys know can be incredibly challenging. So just starting with that versus, you know, going and jumping into a CrossFit class. Like I wouldn't recommend that for someone who's very hypermobile. You have to start, start at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Awesome. That's great. And so give, can you give just a couple examples of like, what are some early, early movements? Somebody's just diagnosed, they're afraid to lift, but they know that strength training is going to be helpful for them. Like what are, what are three or four? I know it's, going to be individual, but like three or four exercises that would be like fairly safe for them to start with that they can progress. We focus specifically on isometrics first, mm -hmm. um, which means you're not moving a joint. You're staying in a static position. A plank is an example of an isometric movement for the listeners. I know you guys know what that is. <laughs> yeah, but no, that's the, the show is for the listeners, not for us. So that's why we ask. Uh, so isometrics and going joint by joint. So if that were to be like a bicep curl, then you're using your own body resistance just to create you know, resistance for that bicep curl and you can change the angles as you start to feel better, but starting in that 90 degree area there, um, pelvic, you know, isolated movements like pelvic tilts. Uh, we teach people a lot of crazy stuff with the shoulder blades, um, isometric head positions. So giving yourself your own resistance for your head without actually moving the head, uh, is cause Ellers downloads people have a lot of neck issues and that's one of the main reasons people come to us neck and lower back. And, um, it's great to just start with the isometric movements. It also helps people just to learn their bodies and their range of motion and, you know, learn like where they're limited or where they have really a lot of extra range of motion. And it just helps so much, even with retraining the nervous system and helping them feel safe moving their bodies. Cause again, there's just so much fear that sometimes if they've had a shoulder injury, they're very protective. So even just getting them to start moving that shoulder through its full range of motion and let their nervous system realize that, hey, this is okay, I can do this, and I can stay within a range that doesn't cause pain. Um, just some of that can be super helpful. So as far as three exercises go, I don't, that doesn't answer it. Yeah, no, no, like... but that was a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> and I know, even as I was asking, I was like, I couldn't answer this. Like, even for, if somebody's <laughs> like, what are your three exercises you should start with? Like, that's a weird question. So you answered what I really wanted to get at, which is like, how do you start? Like, where, and I love, isometrics was the perfect answer. Like, I didn't know that and or that that's where your program starts, but that's perfect because it's like controlling, just controlling your joints in space and holding it. I love it. Love it. All right. Let's move into training around pain. So we've talked about training around hypermobility, but and, and I know some of this will have some crossover because a lot of folks with hypermobility have pain. But maybe, Andrew, you can talk a little bit more about your back injury and how you like I know you've talked about this a couple times already thus far, but how you kind of utilize not just training, but also mindset and maybe even nutrition, like how you kind of utilize a holistic approach to working around, training around that pain, like healing yourself from that injury. And then now moving forward, having had that really severe injury, how do you go about training and making sure that you're like feeling good about it? <laughs> sure. So in terms of the mindset, I had to focus on very, very, very minute improvements, whether that be like, okay, I can lift my knee like half an inch higher today. Um, maybe the next day it won't do that. But overall, the grand scheme of things, there was, there was a small gradual improvement over time. And, you know, if I look back at that point in time, I didn't have the education that I teach people now, which gets people better with the same disc injury or similar disc injury rather. 
um, they'll, they'll get better within a few months uh, compared to my two years because I didn't have uh, the education that I have now. So there was a lot of just kind of exploring the things that would make me better. At the end of it, I did meet a CrossFit coach that made a huge impact on my knowledge of movement and how, how the body worked. And his name is Mike Koopman. He's a badass. He's a veteran. Um, he told me to go to his CrossFit gym. And I'm like, dude, CrossFit injures people. I'm already injured. Like, why would I do that? And he's like, not my gym. So I, I went there and he did some movement tests and just kind of laughed at me because like my whole body just moved everywhere. I do a <laughs> squat and I'd, like people, when they squat down, they'll have like a butt wink. Yeah. He's like, your pelvis moves twice. Before it hits the <laughs> like I don't. I, so he taught me how to just kind of move things very, very slowly with like five pounds. And that was my ground level starting point of just understanding how the body was linked together from head to toe. So I owe a lot to that man. I haven't talked to him in years, but that was my initial starting point for getting like the basics of strength. And then I expanded on that over several years today, you know, having taught so many people online and learned how to teach people through the screen, I figured out a lot of movements that just didn't work well for people. And I've changed my mindset on, on what exercises worked well. Like I used to teach people bracing, like really hard bracing to help keep the spine neutral mm -hmm. and to not move the spine. And I think we that's all did great yeah. initially. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it's great initially, but it actually started to cause other pressure issues down the line, uh, giving people like you know, other hernias and hemorrhoids and stuff like that from, from the amount of pressure they were creating, just picking up a pencil off the ground. Right. Uh, so I definitely shifted my, my teachings over the years because of things like that. And at this point, you know, our teachings are so succinct. Obviously, there's more to learn, more to change. Uh, but the improvements that people have are incredible training-wise. I recently strained my lower back several months ago. It was the beginning of June. So this was my second back injury. Mm. And I had torn some muscles on the left side of my lower back that sent me into spasms pretty intensely. And that was about a two-month process. And it was a great reminder of what all of the people go through that, we're, that we teach. And I healed myself in two months. And there was so much there that was mindset-related fear of movement and fear of um not necessarily the future but just being able to do my my daily life and like whether or not i would go into spasm again and collapse to the ground um so there was a lot of fear of the movement there and it was just a great reminder of what people are going through on a daily basis uh in regards to movement and and pain for someone listening who might have a back injury or or per, uh, persistent back pain is so a lot of them will hear, you shouldn't deadlift. They'll hear the things they shouldn't do, right? Like that tends to be how we deal with pain is um, you can still train, but just don't deadlift. Or you can still train, but just don't squat if you have knee pain or whatever it is. How, and we know that that's not necessarily <laughs> the truth, but how do we get people to kind of get around the fear of deadlifting? So say they have back pain, how do they get around the fear of deadlifting? But also, how do you meet them where they're at in terms of yeah, they have back pain, right? So like, and if they have back pain with deadlifts, like where, where do you go? How do you start? And how do you start reincorporating that back into their training if it's something they want to do? So we start with like pelvic tilts. You're on your hands and knees, you're going to tilt your pelvis back and forth. Because that, you know, when you're hinging, you need to 
basically just tilt your pelvis essentially. Then we take people to an unweighted hinge. Just can you hinge over without weight? Let's practice that for a week. Okay, let's add a five to 40 pound dumbbell to it. Can you hinge with that weight? And just progressively load it again. Help, help people build that confidence with the movement pattern first, unweighted, uh, maybe they're supported, they're using chairs, just taking their body through it. And that's that's really the gist of it. The confidence is a huge component. I think it's it's also, you know, some of it's just education on how pain works and some of the guarding and fear that comes along with it. And also helping people understand that a deadlift is a movement pattern that we use all the time throughout our lives. Like there's a difference between saying you shouldn't go, you know, PR your deadlift or go for a one rep max versus, you know, you shouldn't deadlift. Like we all do that movement throughout our lives, picking up our kids, picking up toys, you know, so if it is producing pain for you right now, maybe we avoid that temporarily as we kind of build the pieces back up to the point of doing that unweighted. And then you gradually, again, just progress gradually. I think that's the thing is people picture themselves deadlifting, like walking up to the bar, like they did (laughs) before their injury. And it's like, you know, you have to rehab it and get back to that point. That's such a good point. I think people should at least be able to deadlift 80 to 120 pounds in, in their life, just, just for life movements. Like you need to pick up things around your house. And a lot of times they're very awkward, even if the object is like 40 pounds because of the way it's shaped, it makes it more like 80 pounds because of the leverage. So I think people just need to be able to do that, that kind of bare minimum there. But if your goal is to get to five, six, 700 pounds, and you have to start small and just work your way up over several people want it to be done in weeks and months. Maybe it'll be years. You'll get there. You've been talking a lot about not just the movement side of things in terms of rehab and pain and injuries and stuff like that. You've been talking about mindset and social networks and just the whole bigger picture beyond just movement. How do you incorporate that into your programs or into your workout online side of things? We tend to be um, very transparent with our personal lives and give examples of how we have navigated these things or how we struggle with these things or how we approach these things. Um, The mindset piece, I mean, honestly, there are times I question if the mindset is actually more important than the movement. Mm -hmm. Um, It is just, I just can't emphasize enough how important that was. And that was something that... I saw a lot working in acute care as a nurse. Um, There was such a drastic difference in how two patients with the same diagnosis, very similar looking on paper, labs, you know, diagnostics all looked very similar and their outcomes would be very different. And the, the huge difference between the two people would be their mindset and how they looked at it. And people who had the ability to look at a challenging situation um, or a painful experience and really cling to those silver linings or those little positives that are always there, no matter. I mean, I saw people with horrible terminal diagnoses that were able to to still focus on the positives. Um, there, there was one young mom that I had with a terminal cancer diagnosis, and I, as a new nurse, was so upset with this woman's prognosis, and she was so happy and so calm. And at one point was actually consoling me, which is not the way that it should be. And she was just saying, I'm, I'm so thankful that I get the opportunity to write my kids letters. I will be with them on their big days, even though I'm not here. Like she was able to still focus and turn it into a positive, this horrible situation. And I just remember thinking 
Like, that's it. If you can do that, like you can overcome anything. If you, if you can control the way that you look at it, then you have the power in the situation, no matter how bad it is. And, um, you know, seeing people get to the point where not only are they okay with their situation, but they're actually thankful for it. Like they actually are able to find gratitude for the struggle that brought them to us in the first place, because it often trickles into other areas of their life. And it really just, people end up just being just more grateful for, mm-hmm. for the little things that you take for granted every day. Yeah. It becomes a catalyst for growth in other areas of their life because it, pain is very confronting. It's something that you want to resolve and it's something that's just, it's not going to go away. Like you can't really ignore it. It'll, it'll be there. So it, people really buckle down to work on this stuff. And we challenge people to look deeper than just the mechanics, just, just how their body's moving. Isn't the whole picture. We do have a community where we, have people kind of post about what they're experiencing they post videos of their movements and all that stuff. But what we really focus on isn't so much the movement, but how they're talking about their experience, the words they're using in their sentences really depict uh, the kind of mindset that they're in. And you can tell who's going to do well just by how they structure their sentences. hundred percent. We've experienced that so much. We used to run a gym and it, it was, it was always very clear. Like if somebody came in and they had an injury and they were like, I'm really excited to be able to get back to doing these movements. I'm really excited to be able to train around this. And like, that's the language they were using as opposed to I'm hurt again. I'm always injured. This is so frustrating. Like, and we know pain and injuries are frustrating. Like absolutely they are, but the quicker that you can get around to, Mm -hmm. okay, this is a new challenge. I'm going to take this on. Like I have, I'm resilient. Like those sort of like more empowering statements to yourself really do make a huge impact on how you can then move forward. So we're hundred percent in alignment on that and that your mindset makes a massive impact. That's great. Okay. So third topic that I want to talk about. So we've talked about hypermobility. We've talked about training around pain. Katie, you mentioned this early on um, and that you've dealt with pelvic organ prolapse. I just want to, first of all, thank you for being so open with that. I had a very traumatic first birth with our first child. He was over nine pounds, which nobody expected. I pushed for four hours, had a vacuum delivery. It was very traumatic. And I did end up having pelvic organ prolapse. And that was something that I had never even really heard that much about at the time. There was not as much on social media even about pelvic health. I knew about like training around my pelvic floor and making sure that I was doing all the quote unquote right things while I was pregnant. So I felt this like massive amount of disappointment, embarrassment, like I did something wrong. There was something wrong with me. And I just want to thank you for just being open and honest about it because I think it's something that can be hard to talk about. And I just really appreciate first and foremost that you do. Thank you. Yeah. It's great that you talk about it too. I mean, the more people that talk about it, you know, hopefully the more women that don't have to suffer silently and that can seek help without feeling um, the amount of, I think, shame that can come along with that. I mean, it's a very sensitive part of the body to be talking about anyway. Um, And it's something that I think our parents' generation like didn't Mm -hmm. talk about. Mm -hmm. And I love that, you know, our generation is speaking out about it more. And hopefully that just continues with future generations because so many women um, are impacted, you know, from one degree, one degree to another with um, pelvic floor issues and men too. 
Mm. Um, but it's really become this like, oh, well, welcome to the joys of motherhood, you know, which is not acceptable. Absolutely. Like, we deserve better. Yeah. That. I mean, I, so I, I told this story in a previous episode, but my mom, we got a trampoline when I was younger and my mom, like we all ran into the backyard and she jumped on it once and she was like, oh, what am I doing? I can't jump on trampolines. I pee when I jump. And I remember being like, and she was like, thanks to you guys. And she like pointed to me and my brother. And I was just like, okay, that's what happens when you have kids. Like no conversation around whether that was not only just like normal, but like didn't need to be the case. Like there, you know, there's so much that just was unspoken. Mm -hmm. Like we don't talk about this. It's embarrassing. It's like taboo. And so, yeah, just the fact that it's even being spoken about, I think is really, really helpful. And something that, I mean, 50% of the population is like potentially going to have children. And like, this is definitely something that is going to impact more likely, especially or pelvic organ prolapse will more likely impact someone who's had children or like you said somebody who has hypermobility or other other pre-existing conditions that might lead to that so can we talk about what are some ways that we can train either like around it or like what I know that you have a lot of um, experience now or you've gained a lot of knowledge about pelvic health can you talk about training with pelvic or organ prolapse or a similar pelvic dysfunction yeah i mean you know again there's not a black or white you know, clear right. answer of do this, don't do this. Um, but, you know, meeting people where they're at, I think it's really important, especially with anyone postpartum, whether they have any known pelvic floor dysfunction or not. Um, you know, especially with women who do remain active throughout their pregnancy, like I did, like I'm sure you did as well. You know, you have this baby and you're, you're like, want to get back into your routine of fitness and, the rest of your body a lot of times is still in really great shape. Like you are strong and you look like you're in shape. And, you know, at the time I was working with a trainer um, and I think it's really important to understand that the weakest link is going to be the core and pelvic floor for any postpartum women, whether they experience a traumatic birth or an easy delivery or whatever it is, like you have to rebuild that and you have to focus on the area that is the weakest link before you start like the rest of your body is probably fine to go do heavy deadlifts or squats, but you have to think about the weakest link. And, and because you can't see it, I think it makes it more challenging mm. um, for some people. But, you know, really working on, you know, if you can see a pelvic floor physical therapist in person, I think every woman should do that after any birth. Um, but definitely if there's any, you know, traumatic delivery, um, super important. There's a lot that can be done you know, internally and externally in person, um, you know, some manual therapies that can be really helpful. And then starting with breath work is always my favorite place for people because a lot of people just have some breathing patterns that could be worked on that can help uh, improve their pelvic floor function and really understanding how the pelvic floor and diaphragm work together and how to manage pressure through your movements and then how to assess for any bulging either in the belly or perineum or, you know, starting to sense and get in touch with the area, whether you're generating pressure downward in your movements and being able to use that as a gauge, you know, for what you're ready for, or where you're ready to progress, I think is important. That's awesome. And that's really helpful. I think for any injury is like that using things as a gauge is such a good piece of advice. Cause it's like, you can easily get frustrated. Like, Oh, I feel this in my pelvic floor, I shouldn't, I can't do this anymore. And instead it can be like, oh, okay, I'm feeling, I'm noticing some bulging, so I should probably scale the weight back or I should try a different variation using it as feedback. 
as opposed to, and using pain or discomfort as feedback as opposed to a black or white, like, you can do this or you can't. Yeah, we've done, we've talked about this quite a bit. It's like, you know, my, my uh, linea alba, so the line right down the middle of the, the belly, it'll bulge outward with like a really intense, like an L-sit position or something like mm. that. And it's like, well, do you avoid the position that is causing the bulging? Um, or do we kind of scale it back a little bit do it to a point where it's like it's bulging a little bit, but you're able to build strength because if you just avoid the bulging altogether, you may not actually build enough strength to prevent the bulging in the first place. So there's like a little bit of a give and take, a mm. yin yang here of um, kind of pushing into it a little bit, but not too far. Yeah, you do actually have to load those tissues um, to strengthen them, which I think, you know, you can go too far in avoiding any of like the bulging, doming, coning that type of thing. Um, but there's so many things that you can play with, like f with the deadlifting, you know, your breathing patterns, you can play with your, the placement of your feet can actually make a big difference or putting a band around your knees, or there's just so many things that you can modify to make it work for you that I think it's just having the, the ability to approach your body a bit like an experiment and know that you can play around and experiencing some sensations that, you know, might be a warning to switch things up like experiencing that a few times is not going to hurt you so yeah. really being comfortable just experimenting and finding what feels best for you mm -hmm. it's a good place to be i love that love it. that's perfect awesome well okay so this has been super informative i know our audience is going to get a ton out of everything that you've told them so far but if they want to learn more from you and they want to continue to support you what's the best way for people to do that uh our instagram at wealth that's at w health um our website is spreadwealth.com those are really the best two areas we do have a little youtube we're going to start putting out some little mm -hmm. bit of longer content we have some hypermobility stuff coming up on our youtube soon so we have our, our limitless program which is just for anyone it's a little bit faster pace um we have our hypermobility program which breaks down things joint by joint even to the like finger level um and building strength in literally every area of the body. Uh, Limitless is just a faster variation of that. Hypermobility is broken down even more. Then we have our strength and conditioning program, um, which expands upon all the things you learn in the other two and applies it to strength. Perfect. Thank you so, so much. We really, really appreciate you being here, being our experts on this, because I know that there are so many people out there dealing with very similar situations and your your approach to everything that you've personally gone through is really inspiring and hopefully others will follow suit so thank you so thank you. much thank you. Thank, you. thank you for having us